Good morning. My name is Linda, and I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I want to thank the committee for inviting me to be part of it. Malcolm informed me last night that I am the bonus Al-Anon. I've been called a lot of things, but never a bonus Al-Anon before, so I appreciate that title. Um, again, thank you for making us so welcome. We've run into people that we've known from other parts of the country, the people that have um, visited with us in Nashville, Tennessee, and it, and it feels so one and wonderful to be here in Paducah, Kentucky. So again, I say thank you for that. Um, Scott said that one time Lawrence was asked what she did in the moment of silence before the serenity prayer, and she said, I invite God to the meeting. I need to ask for another moment of silence, if you would just indulge me with that, because I would like to ask the God of my understanding to come and be here with me, so I'm not up here by myself. So if you just please have another moment of silence, if you'd be willing to ask the God of your understanding to come and be with us this morning. Meet you back here in just a second. Thank you. And now I am up here with my God of my understanding. I'm up here with my sponsor, and I'm up here with all of the people that were in the rooms before I got there, because this is a we program. I say thank you to you for participating in your own recovery this morning and being here to, to hang out with me, and it's just my time to tell my story, and so that's what I'm going to set about doing. What I like about conventions, and especially state conferences like this, is that the excitement starts building before the day of the event. You have committee meetings, you get together, you start making plans, you start doing your packing, and you take off, and you and you, you gather here for this weekend, and wonderful things start happening. And it reminds me of uh, several years ago when we started getting ready to go out to San Diego to the International, Alcoholics Anonymous International. That's going to happen again in uh, Minneapolis coming up this year, and that gets in our conversations. You know, we say, how are you, and, and are we going to see you in Minneapolis? And I'm really excited about that. And it was the same excitement that I had when we were heading out to San Diego. We started in Nashville, Tennessee, and we get on this big airplane, and some of our friends are on that plane, and we're laughing, and we're having a good time. And I think the plane had to stop in uh, St. Louis, and some people got off, but some more of us got on. We could recognize them because of the circles and the triangle, and they were smiling, and they were happy to be there. And on that last leg of that trip out to San Diego, it was packed out. I mean, every single seat was taken, and people were laughing, and they were having a good time. And I was uh, at the back of the airplane waiting my turn to get into the ladies' room, and I got to visiting with one of the flight attendants. And I said, well, uh, are you having a good day? Because, you know, she's working. We're out there having a good time, and she's working. She says, yes. Yeah. She says, we're really busy. It's 100% uh, full. Every single seat is taken. And she says, you know, a curious thing, we have never served so much coffee. <laughs> And I just smiled at her, you know. She knew us already, didn't she? So we do get out to um, San Diego, and at, that was great. The people were greeting us at the airport, and they encouraged us to wear our badges everywhere. So we had gone out to uh, SeaWorld, and as we were getting out of the taxi to go to SeaWorld, there were three Oriental people, J Japanese people, that wanted our taxi, and we recognized that they had their badges on. Jump up a little closer. You're getting me into trouble here, Gene. <laughs> okay. That better? Okay, we'll see what happens. I said that sounded like my voice before I got into Al-Anon. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so here we are out in San Diego, and uh, these, these wonderful people wanted our taxi, and, and we started talking to them in the language of the heart. We had no... Uh, Japanese, and they had no English. And so we stood there bobbing and pointing to our badges and crying and hugging each other, and we had a five-minute conversation, you know, without ever exchanging a word. And, and that's the, the beauty and the love of this program that, that happens when we get together. And that's what this weekend feels like. I was really honored in San Diego. I was invited to be on one of the Al-Anon panels. And what they would do, they would send you a topic, and you'd have about 15 minutes to share on a certain topic that was assigned. And when I got my topic, I chuckled. It was um, living with sobriety after the honeymoon's over. I thought they invited me there because I'm in my third marriage. <laughs> I thought that anonymity was changing my last name several times, you know. <laughs> oh. 
and I, I did participate in that panel, and I did tell my part of it, and, and I can't tell you too much about what I had to say. But the woman that talked right before me, and when she introduced herself, she told my story in, in one sentence, and it went like this. She said, Hello, my name is so-and-so, and I'm from Georgia. I'm a member of Al-Anon, and I am addicted to mood-altering men. <laughs> I thought, that's it. <laughs> that's my story, you know, and I... And, and being the good little Al-Anon that I am, I take it a step further. Not only am I addicted to mood-altering men, I'm also addicted to altering their moods. You know, if he's in a good mood, then I want to talk about the bills and the plumbing that's not working. And if he's in a sad mood, then I want to cook up a favorite recipe or I want to, you know, do something really fun and frivolous. Whatever his mood is, I seem to want to kind of control it. And that was just my story in Al-Anon. I, uh... I don't apologize for being attracted to this wonderful personality type that we call these AAs. I absolutely think that that's where our creativity comes from, where the sparks that happen come from, that, that wonderful personality that I'm so enamored with. And, uh, and I seem to have a tendency to pick them out. In fact, Scott and I are really blessed that we get to go do this in other places across the country. And what, a lot of times we're going to be met by somebody that we've only talked to on the phone and we don't have a clue to what they look like. He says to me, he says, I'll go get the luggage and you go pick them out, you know, <laughs> because I have a knack for doing that. And uh, in fact, I kept uh, kept saying that this was such a, a gift that I have for being able to pick out these alcoholic personalities that I needed to have this little business card printed. And I threatened to do this for so long that for my birthday a couple of years ago, Scott gave me this uh, a whole package of these cards. And um they're just little business cards that I can use when I'm out at the grocery store. I'm picking up the dry cleaning, and I look over there, and I think, whoa, boy, they're kind of attractive. I can just hand them one of these cards. The front of it has my name and phone number and everything on it. The back of it says this. Hi, my name is Linda. I am a member of Al-Anon. I find you attractive, so I suggest you go to the nearest treatment center and have an assessment done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just think how much time that would save all of us, you know. <laughs> um, and this this first wonderful personality that, that I'm attracted to, that I think this, this man I think is one of the most interesting people I've ever known, and, and that's my dad. And I've known him all my life, you know. And I've seen my dad drink most days of his life. I've seen him drink a lot on a lot of days. And um, my dad's in his early 70s, and he tells me, he says, you know, I'm going to fish, play golf, and I'm going to drink, and I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. And thanks to Alan and I can say, that's right, Dad, whatever you need to do. And I say, I love and hug on him just the same. And it wasn't always that way. I am an only child, and um, being an only child, you ha you feel like you've got a lot of control in your family. You know, all of the budget for clothes could go toward me. I always had my own room. Some people would call it being spoiled, you know. <laughs> I called it just being special. And... uh <laughs> And so I thought that, um, that, that since I was so doted on, that maybe that's what made my parents happy. And so I somehow took on the responsibility of trying to keep them happy. And I never heard them argue over anything. And even today, I don't hear them argue over anything except my dad's drinking. And my mother was one that would wait at the window and she'd say, we'll eat dinner when your dad comes home. And I'd say, I want to go to the dance Friday night. You'll have to wait and ask your dad, you know. And it was just that constant thing of, of trying to make him part of the family. Now, this is a wonderful, creative guy. He's just so energetic. He can build anything. He can go and do everything. He's quite successful, and I love and care about him, both of my parents, And um, but that was just the way it was growing up. It was the beginnings of living with the disease of alcoholism, perhaps, and I didn't even know that that was causing any problems in their family or in my life any more than I could have said, well, eating macaroni and cheese is causing a problem because it was just a way of life. My dad played golf at the country club, and uh, I would go over and uh, pick up my girlfriend in the morning before school and high school when I had my spiffy little convertible, and I'd see her dad sitting in the living room already that morning in his underwear, maybe drinking on something. I'm thinking, boy, I guess I have a problem. But because my parents were hanging out at the country club, I thought, well, that must not be the same problem that's going on in our household. And uh, before I turned 20... I met another young man that I could give this business card to. I just thought he was so wonderfully attractive. And um, and, I, and I think that I thought I needed to get out of my household with my parents. 
I couldn't have told you why, but just because there was something inside me that says I needed to get, get on and do a different life. And I had known this young man for two weeks when he asked me to marry him, you know. And we had met on a, on a college campus, and um, boy, was he exciting and attractive and wonderful. And I went and told my parents that I was going to marry this young man, and they said, well, don't you think that he should have a job first? And we said, you know, that's just details. We'll work it out. We were in love, you know. We were in love. So we got married. I just turned 20. We got married. We were still in school, and uh, we lived happily ever after for the first week. You know, and then to uh, celebrate that first uh, week of marriage, he brought in um, two friends came home with him that afternoon. One was Cliff that was in his history class, and the other was Bud that came in in the cooler. And I saw my husband and his other best friend have a really good time that night. I saw his voice change. I saw his facial expression change. And I saw his friend pass out on our couch, and I saw him pass out on our bed. And I'm standing there in the middle of the floor stomping my foot, and I'm thinking, he can't get away with that. I'm going to have to punish him. I'm going to have to do something to uh, show him that that's unacceptable. So to show this young man that I've been married to for a week as he's sleeping very peacefully in a deep sleep from his drinking, and he was snoring a great deal, I showed him. I went and slept in the bathtub. You know, I get a backache that next morning, and I'm cranky because I've had absolutely no sleep. But it set up a dance, and it was a dance that lasted for 16 years and two lovely daughters. And that was, if he's going to act that way, then I'm going to have to act this way to show him. It started the dance of control, manipulation, carrying on, and not really talking about what was going on. Um, we'd been married about two years when our first daughter was born, and, and we'd been in and out of school, and it seemed like it was kind of time for this young man to get a job now, and he was still trying to find himself, you know. and, and um, we were, this is all happening out in West Texas, around the Odessa and San Angelo area. And he saw in the newspaper an ad for a lounge act. That's what they called it, a lounge act. Now he was very good on the guitar and singing and, uh, so he went down to a hotel, not unlike this one, I think it was a Holiday Inn, and he auditioned and he got a job singing in the bar. Now, this was amazing to us because all of a sudden, in one week, he was making more money than we'd seen in about three months. We couldn't believe it. So this was when they had liquor by the drink and all of the lounges had their own, uh, I think you had to pay a dollar to become a member so you could go in and, and hear, hear the band and get a drink. And what I know about bands is uh, it's really not about making music, it's about selling alcohol, you know. Uh, that's how they would say whether or not they invited us back. If we were a good band, that meant the numbers and the sales of alcohol had gone up. And I don't know if that meant we played more sad songs or what, but that's how they judged the, the good band. And uh, so he started working in these different holiday inns. And we have this baby, and he starts traveling all over Texas, going from holiday inn to holiday inn. And I decided that was uh, letting him go out without adult supervision. So I packed up this baby and a hot plate, and we started living in these hotels. And it looked like a real jet-set life. You know, he's going down every night. He's really bringing in the money. He's having a party. He's happy, and, and things are really going wonderful. You don't have a lot of expenses like rent and utility bills when you're living in a hotel room. And uh, and I'm thinking, well, this is we're going to live happily ever after. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me that every night I'm stuck upstairs with this baby. We have no life to speak of. We have no friends because you were not in one place long enough to, you know, get in community. And so I decide that I need to step in and do something. Now, you can't tell me that we pre-Alanons are not determined people. I decided that every night when he was going down there to have a party, that that was too long of a leash, that I, my being upstairs was not, you know, not enough supervision. So I announced to this young man that um, I was going to be the drummer in the band. He had had three drummers that didn't show up that week, and I said, you know, at least I'll be here. And he said, well, have you ever played the drums before? And I said, that's just details. We'll work it out, you know. <laughs> and so on a Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock in, um, in Nacogdoches, um, Texas, we went into a pawn shop. I took the bass player with me, and he helped me pick out a set of drums. And Monday night, I am the drummer in the band, you know. <laughs> and um, it's amazing if you do anything five to six hours a night for about seven years, you become very good at it. And I became a very good drummer, and... I was a lot younger and a lot thinner, and hot pants were in, and I smiled a lot, and I, I was a successful drummer, I have to tell you that. And we toured all over Texas. I, I played with a lot of names that you would recognize. Um, 
For some reason, wherever we were, whether it was in Dallas or it was in Houston or West Texas or wherever it was, we seemed to be the club that we could lock the doors and everybody would come in and party afterwards. And believe me, there's a lot of partying going on. Many a times I would be down there, would have to let the babysitter go, and I would take the phone off the hook in our hotel room and leave the hook, the phone off the hook in the, in the lounge so I could hear if, if our young, if our baby woke up upstairs. And I thought that this was a good life. I thought this was a jet setting life. I thought we were celebrities and we had it all together. And, um, this marriage, um, I played the drums until I became pregnant with our second daughter. There's eight years between the daughters. And after that, I decided that it was time for me to retire. Um, our last big club that we were performing at, they, a group of investors actually built a nightclub for my husband in Houston, Texas. And it was very elaborate. It had a great restaurant. It had a great showcase. It had a great dance floor. You know, things were really looking good. And the night that they had their grand opening down the street, disco opened up. I don't know if you remember those times, but disco actually killed live performances in small rooms. And it's just a matter of timing, you know, just a matter of timing. And so here we are in Houston, and this club has gone belly up, and we're looking at each other across the uh, breakfast table, and he says, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, let's move to Nashville, Tennessee. That's where the songwriters are, and he had written a lot of songs. So we packed up the cardboard boxes one more time and went to Nashville. And I've been in Nashville over 20 years. That's my home now. And my feeling about Nashville is kind of like my feeling about program. I said, you know, how can you feel like you're going home to a place that you've never lived? But that's the way that town called to me. And I got settled in. And uh, and this marriage um, was beginning to fall apart. As we know, um, sometimes the party became can become more important than the business. And my husband was trying to make it in the music business. And he had moderate success there. But... Sometimes um, having the fun seemed more important than taking care of business. And he had been really successful in Texas, and it was a big shock to find out that people were pretty serious about music in Nashville, Tennessee. So he says, I'm going to move back to Texas. And I said, I'm exhausted. You know, we in, in 16 years of marriage, we had moved 13 times. That's not even counting the times that we had lived on the road. I'd packed up the cardboard boxes a lot, and I had just run out of steam. I used to get a lot of... Uh, oohs and ahs about moving so many times, but I think if we looked at the history books, I think that Lois and Bill Wilson had 37 different mailing addresses. You know, this is just a mobile way to live, very mobile. And um, what happens when you're moving that, you never catch up on the light bill, you never catch up on the phone bill, you never catch up on the deposits. And so the spiral was starting going down and down and down. And we couldn't have told you that drinking was causing a problem because it was our livelihood. Going into those saloons every night was the way my husband was making a living. So how could we say that was causing any problems in our marriage? But he moved back to Texas, and um, I decided to stay in Nashville, Tennessee. I liked it there. So I had a resume that said, drummer in the band, you know. <laughs> I'd been working at the Country Music Foundation, and um, and all of a sudden, the, the gentleman that who was our neighbor that handled our divorce he said, I know a guy that uh, needs somebody to work in his office, and he's in commercial real estate. Why don't you go and interview for that job? And I was hired. You know, I can't type and I can't spell, and I got this job. Pretty amazing. It's part of the story. This, <laughs> and But for a while there, I'm a single mom, and, and I think that I felt cheated that I'd, you know, I'd gotten married so young, and, and I'd see a lot of people having a good time out there, and I think there were times that I thought my husband was having a good time outside of our marriage. And so this is kind of the time of my life that keeps my sponsor from uh, dozing off when I'm doing my fifth step. You know, I really made up for some for some lost time in there. And I'm a I'm a single mom. I'm working in a new job, and I'm quite successful at it. I'm quite successful at commercial real estate. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got it together. If I can get enough money in the bank, then then I can be a successful family. I'll be the mom and the dad. My oldest daughter, who was in her preteens. Um, she can be the mom, and the little girl that's you know had, hadn't even turned four years old yet, she can be our family, and we're going to live happily ever after. Well, as we know, that sometimes that uh, you can't outrun some of the things you know you're not supposed to be doing. And one Christmas, I looked at the Christmas pictures, and I thought, wow, something's missing from this picture. And I decided it must be a man, but that's why our lives were getting so crazy and so wild, that I needed to settle down. And I didn't think that I had a lot of time to look around. So 
This man that hired me as a secretary because I couldn't type and couldn't spell was my boss, so I married him, you know. <laughs> and what I didn't know about this man was not only was he an alcoholic, he was also a closet cocaine addict. And um, that was a marriage that lasted for about eight years, and that's got violent enough, scary enough, desperate enough to get me into a recovery. So I'm forever grateful for the experience I had with that man. Uh, it looked like a Cinderella story. You know, um, he married me. He adopted my two daughters. He moved us into a mansion. I know this was a mansion because it had six bathrooms. Believe me, that's a large home. We lived right across the street from the governor and Minnie Pearl and Ronnie Millsap, and I thought, man, I have arrived. And what I know about this disease is that there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of anger. And also what I know about this disease is that nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. And um, what looked like a wonderful Cinderella story became a frightening, frightening experience. And um, that marriage was probably happy for about the first month. And then, and then the true face of the disease came forward. And um, I decided it wouldn't look very good on my resume for another failed marriage. So I drugged this man kicking and screaming into marriage counseling. Now, I picked out this marriage counselor out of the phone book um, just at random, and we would go into this doctor's office, and um, we would sit there, and I would be crying, and I would be weeping, and I would be desperate, and my then-husband would shut down and look at the ceiling or look at the floor. Well, the doctor would take out a paper clip, and with great deliberation, he would keep unfolding it and unfolding it and get it open all the way and kind of bend it back down till it was just perfect. And he would kind of whirl it like this, and it looked like a little helicopter, and pretty soon we're all looking at that, and nobody's really saying anything. And then he'd kind of come to, and he'd look at his watch, and he'd say, oh, time's up. He'd say um, to me, he'd say, you are too sensitive. And he'd say to my husband, you're not sensitive enough. Uh, that'll be $75, and I'll see you the next time you have a fight. Well, well we would go away. And... Um, you know, we are living uh, an unbelievable life. We are in all of the best organizations. We're in all of the Friends of the Wine. We are traveling all over the world, literally. We're pulling sailboats to Canada. We're going down to the Keys, and we're sailing everywhere. And yet that desperateness of the disease is there with us all the time. And um, we would go on these little honeymoon trips, and then we'd come back, and we'd, we'd get desperate again, and we'd go see this doctor, and He'd say the same thing over and over again, that I was too sensitive, that my uh, then-husband was not sensitive enough, and that was just the way we were living our lives. We were um, Nashville was in a boom. We were developing shopping centers all over the state. Uh, it, I mean, it looked like a good picture. It looked like something that you would want to, uh, a dream that you'd want to step into. And I always say we were the looking good and feeling bad family. That's exactly what was going on. Um, I was so busy working, I had no time to pay attention to my daughters. I decided that, you know, I'd given them all the opportunities. They were in private school now. They needed to straighten up. I was such a neglectful mother that, that I would send my daughters to school with 102 fever because perfect children don't get sick, and that was just my attitude. I don't have time for you to be sick today. Uh, you get up, and you get dressed, and you get on to school. I was very harsh and very brittle, and I was trying to hang on to anything I could hang on to. Uh, it was it was a desperate situation, but my uh, my husband and I had worked really hard and to reward ourselves. In fact, it was a, a Valentine trip. It was um, in February. There was snow on the ground in Nashville, Tennessee, and we'd gone down to the Lower Keys with another couple, and um, we'd flown into Miami and we'd rented a car and we were driving down to the Lower Keys. We were going to stay down there for several days and hang out in the sunshine and party. And we're at dinner that evening with this other couple, and, um, and and I said something wrong, you know. And I learned from Father Leo last night that that was my moment. I didn't know it at the time, and I haven't had a name for it, so thank you for that. But my moment came when I looked up and I saw the monster of the disease about to show up on my husband's face. And I knew there was going to be a scene because I'd been in those scenes before, and I knew it was going to be ugly, and I knew it was going to be public in this very nice restaurant. And I knew that something snapped in me, and I'd had enough. And um, so I announced to the table that I was going to go home. They thought that meant that I was going to go home back to the hotel. I meant I was going home back to Nashville, Tennessee. That was the beginning of what I call a run. I was running away. I'd finally had enough. And 
I'd seen it in the movies. I did, I'm out, down there without a car, and I'd seen it in the movies. I had the restaurant owner. I said, would you call me a cab, please? And he said, okay. So the cab came up, and I got in, and he said, where to, ma'am? And I said, the Miami airport. <laughs> he said, well, that's, um, you know, that's over 170 miles away. I, this cab won't make it. I'm going to have to go home and get another taxi. And I said, fine, whatever. I'm really upset. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm going into a residential part, and I thought, this is a bit unusual. I've never gone home with a taxi driver before. And about the time I had some sense to say, wait a minute, this is a little awkward, we pulled up in front of this house, and this woman stuck her head out, and she says, hey, hun, I'm his wife. You come on in. He's got to get that other taxi ready. She ended up being a guardian angel. She said, whoa, you look like you're having a really rough time. Do you need anything? And I said, well, could I have, uh, she was folding her laundry and her kids' laundry there on her couch. And I said, well, could I have a pair of socks? <laughs> I was going back to Nashville with snow on the ground, and I'd walked out with just my purse. And um, I had on a sundress and sandals. And she said, sure, sure, hon, here's some socks, and you take care of yourself. And um, her husband took me then to the Miami airport. And he did make me pay him all in cash, which I think I was a good businessman. I would have wanted that, too. I, I did look like a desperate woman. But I thought that's no problem. Um, I, I've lived, I'm an executive businesswoman. I've traveled all over. I can live on plastic. And, and I get to the Miami airport, and amazingly enough, at 11 o'clock at night, there's not a direct flight to Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, that's okay. I'll just get me a room, and I'll stay here in Miami. Well, there was a sailboat show going on and a, a, a automobile race going on in Miami. And I, the truth was there were no rooms to be had, absolutely zero rooms, and I desperately tried. Here I am, short of cash, no rooms to be had, and um, I have no other choice. My choice was to spend the night at the Miami airport. Well, maybe you've been stranded by a plane before, and to spend the night in an airport is not a big deal. But the Miami airport at that time was under construction, and it wasn't safe. It, in fact, it was, it was like a, a war zone, in truth. And I spent the rest of that night with my back up against the wall, just trying to stay alive and trying to stay safe. And um, as I'm in this desperate situation, I've got literally my back up against the wall, hanging on to my, my bag, my purse. And I said a prayer, a prayer that I probably haven't even know about praying since the now I lay me down to sleep. I said, God, my life is unmanageable. That's all I said. And um, that was a funny word to come into my vocabulary. You know, I'm an executive that kept two secretaries busy full-time and manageable. I've got a daytimer. I've got a planner. You show me what the deal is, I'll get it done. You show me how many zeros you need on the bottom line, I'm going to get it done. You show me anything that needs to be done, and I will get it done. And now all of a sudden, I've used the word unmanageable. I do get a flight back to Nashville early that morning, and, uh, and I come home, and I am I'm a broken woman. Um, my daughter was staying over at the sitters. My oldest daughter was off at college, and I went to this big mansion that was supposed to be the Live Halfway Ever After storybook story, and I climb into my daughter's bed because I'm such a broken person. I feel like I have no safe place. And um, my, my then-husband comes home. He gets a, a flight later on about, I guess it's about later that night of that same day. And um, I told you that he was my second husband. What I didn't tell you is that I was this man's fourth wife. I really believed I was the woman that was, you know, could make the difference. And uh, I had seen him angry before, but I had never seen him this angry. He walked into our house and he said, nobody, nobody ever walks out on me. He said, you embarrassed me and nobody walks out on me. And um, again, with that desperate feeling with my back up against the wall, I was given a, a God thought. I know with all my heart this was a God thought. I said, I hear you, I know you're upset, but to kind of stall for time, I said, why don't we call that doctor that we've been seeing and try to go see him, just to kind of defuse the situation. And he said, okay, go call him. And again, a God thing happened. The doctor's office answered. She said, we had a cancellation at 2 o'clock. If you can be here in 20 minutes, the doctor can see you. We get there, and we walk into this doctor's office. Remember the one with the paper clip, the one that wasn't interested at all about what was going on? He met us at the door. He said, come in, come in. He had eye contact with us. He asked me to sit down. He asked my husband to sit down. He went back on his side of the desk, and he leaned forward, and he said, before you start talking, I have to tell you something. 
He said, my name is Dr. So-and-so. I am an alcoholic. I need to make amends to you because I haven't always been as present to my clients as I could have been. And I'm here to tell you that my life has changed. And it had. You could see it. You could see it in his physique. You could see it in his face. From that meeting to the last meeting, this man had gotten into recovery and he was a changed person. He picked up immediately on what was going on because he could identify it. He could see what was going on with my husband. And he said, look, he said, to help make amends to you guys, he said, my wife and I were going to go to this week-long coupleship conference. And here are the tickets, and here's the schedule, and you get on this plane, and you go up there, and you get your life together, or, or you get on with your life. And so we kind of walked out of that room kind of with our heads circling around because the next morning we're on a flight to South Dakota. You know, God is busy today. <laughs> so we get up and go to this um, this couple's retreat up in South Dakota, and we walk into this facility, and we walk into a room about this size, and there are two banners on the wall, and, and I walk over to them, and one of them, you know, they were the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And I look at that first step, and there was that word unmanageable again. And I thought, isn't that strange that that word would show up again in my life so soon? So we're up at, at this couple's retreat. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to a couple workshop or a couple weekend or for a couple week, but trust me, it looks like Noah's Ark. Everybody is walking around in twosies and twosies. They're walking around the lake. They're going into dinner. They're going to the bookstore. And I'm out there by myself because the staff immediately grabbed my husband by the collar and took him into the other room and kept him in there day after day after day. And I'm out there stomping my foot like, how can we work on this relationship if they keep him in the other room? And what I know now is that they were trying to do an intervention on that man. That this program isn't about saving relationships, saving marriages. It's about saving lives. So um, we kind of get through that week. I learned the serenity prayer. I get some exposure, but very little to program. And as we're getting ready to go back to the airport, seems like my story has a lot of airport in it. Maybe that's why I'm married to my now and forever husband, a pilot, you know. <laughs> oh, Anyway, so we're getting ready to go back to the airport. And, and the director of that facility, a wonderful, loving man, a big bear of a man, he gave me a hug. And he whispered in my ear, get yourself to Al-Anon. You know, and... Uh, we were up there in South Dakota, and uh, I, I decided that Al-Anon must be an, an Indian word. I didn't have a clue as to what he was talking about. So we do get back to Nashville, and uh, as you know, sometimes when you've got a little bit of awareness about your behavior, you've got a little bit of awareness about the possibility of breaking a lifestyle and getting into recovery, sometimes things get worse. A little bit of awareness can sometimes make things worse, and that's what happened with this marriage. Um, within just a very few days, it was just even more desperate. I didn't think it could be even more desperate. Of course, my then husband was trying to hang on to his, desperately, to all of his addictions. You know, he was desperately trying to, 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 you know, to be on his own journey and find out what was going on inside his soul. But out of a desperate situation, I remembered those words, get yourself to Al-Anon. And, um, again, I got out my trusty reference book, the, the Yellow Pages. And I called Al-Anon, and I want to tell you that I am amazed that there it was, Alcoholics Anonymous, and there it was, Al-Anon. And from right now, today, here in February, I want to say thank you to anyone who's ever worked at an intergroup office. I want to say thank you to anyone who's ever worked at an AA Central office, because you are saving lives. You are changing people's lives. I called, and uh, this woman that answered the phone, she said, uh, she said, it's amazing, but there's a brand new meeting about two blocks from your office on Monday. And I had called on a Monday because if you remember, sometimes weekends are long when you're living with the disease. And I said, really? I said, well, I think I can do that. I think I can take an hour out of my busy schedule, especially since it's going to be over lunch. I think I can go down there and go to that meeting and, you know, get, get, you give me the literature and you tell me what all I, I an hour, sure, I'm, I'm busy, but I can do that. Little did I know that that one hour was going to start changing my life, did I? You know. So um, I head off to this new meeting at the Methodist Publishing House. It's called the Monday Midday, Mid Monday Midday Downtown Al-Anon Group, and 12 years plus, it's still my group. 
And um, we give each other safety pins. We hold a regular household safety pin, and everybody in my group holds it, and we give it to the person that's getting ready to go off and do something kind of scary, like visit parents or, you know, give a talk. <laughs> so my home group says hello to you because they're here with me. And um, I love that group so very much. And, uh, but the Methodist Publishing House is, uh, has heavy security, and you, you don't just walk in. You have to push a buzzer. Back then we had to push a buzzer. Now we get to go in the front. We've improved our, our status there in the building. I just thought about that. But we used to have to push this buzzer, and the voice would come on and says, um, can I help you? And I said in my most, Alan, uh, my, my most executive voice, um, uh, yes, I am here for an Al-Anon meeting. And he ruffled through some papers, and he says, we don't have any Mr. Anons that work here. <laughs> he thought I was there to see Al, you know. And uh, So being the determined woman that I am, you know, you can't tell us not to do something. Like, don't tell me I can't get into a, a building. Well, I got into a, I got into that building, and I got into the, the area right before I'm going to step into the room. You know, the, the door's closed. It's a small meeting room, and the door was closed. And I want to tell you about the woman that put her hand on that doorknob that first day. I was desperate. I looked like I had it all together. I was angry. I was um, fearful. And yet it looked like I had it all together. I just couldn't believe that, that my life was such falling apart to pieces when it looked like I had it all together. Um, we were very successful in business. Um, this is what our household looked like. My husband was, of course, acting out in his addictions, and I'm pre-Alanon, plus I'm pre-menopause. My uh, oldest daughter was in her early activity with her journey with drugs and alcohol, and my eight-year-old daughter was in precocious puberty. Our house was a true war zone. We had no intimacy. We had no connectedness. We each had a bedroom, and we had a TV, and every night we would go into those separate rooms, and that's where we would be. We had no family connect. It was too scary, too hard, too dangerous. So this is the woman. I looked organized. I looked great. I looked successful. And I'm absolutely a two-year-old, terrified of the world as I step in. I opened that door, and, and I said, what's that noise? And they said, that's laughter. Come on in. You know, it had been a long time since I'd heard that laughter. And they said, come in. And I went and sat down in my first Al-Anon meeting, and I started crying. I couldn't have told you why. I could, I, you know, maybe now when I see the newcomers, I can identify a little bit about that because it is like sliding into home base, but you don't know it. How can you ask for something when you didn't even know it was out there? How did I know that this was going to be a miracle in my life? Um, but like all newcomers, I think I did what, what we do when we first get into Al-Anon. I call it, all I could do was sing the hymns. You know the ones, him did this and him did that. <laughs> That's all I could do when I first got into Al-Anon. But they loved me anyway, and they let me stay, and they let me get, um, get let me get a sponsor. You know, they let me get active. Although this particular sponsor I had didn't let me get active in service work for at least about a year and a half, two years. She said, she said you are too determined. You are too much of an organization. She said you are not well enough. This is what she told me. You are not well enough to do service work. You will get in there, and you will sign up for all the chairperson's positions. You'll get so active in that that you will not get into your own recovery. She was a wise woman, very wise woman. And so here I am. I've got a sponsor. I'm, I'm hanging out in Al-Anon. And, um, and again, sometimes it's just not meant to be. And so that marriage, it was time for us to go our separate ways. And I wish him the best because because of that marriage and living that lifestyle, I became exposed to recovery, so I can't begrudge any of that time. So I'm in Al-Anon now, and I am loving it. My life is changing. What did I do? I did basically what it says here in our ODAP book before the 12 steps. It says, study of these steps is essential to progress in the Al-Anon program. In Al-Anon, we strive for an ever-deeper understanding of these steps and pray for the wisdom to apply them to our lives. That's all I said about doing, studying these steps with a sponsor. And amazing things started happening. I got a God of my understanding. I got a me of my understanding. And I got a you of my understanding. Before I got into Al-Anon, I had a fearful God. I guess the God was more like a referee at a sporting event. I'd be going on doing life, and the whistle would blow, and bam, I would get penalized. 
That's the only God I came into these rooms with. And um, and the me of my understanding was um, was whatever I was doing at the time, whatever hat. If I, I was trying to be the perfect daughter, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, the perfect mother, the perfect employer, the perfect employee, the perfect PTA president, whatever I was doing, that's all the identity I had. Whatever hat I had on, and I'm switching them fast. That's all I knew about me was what I saw reflected back in your faces or in, in my actions. That's all I knew about me. And the you of my, uh, the, the, the you out there, the rest of the world of my understanding, you came in two categories. If you were a female, you were after him. And if you were male, you were after me. And that's just the way I summed everybody up. And I got on with my business life and that's just the way I lived. So thanks to these steps, I started getting a God of my understanding that was a lot more gentle. You know, because I could look back at the miracles. I could look back at surviving that night at the airport. I could look back at getting to go to South Dakota to find out about Al-Anon. I could look back on the fact that somebody answered the phone the first time I called. So I started to believe through what I saw that there must be a loving God that cared about me. And it didn't happen real quickly. Um, and it, it happened through study, but it mainly happened for me through um, through a bumper sticker that I saw one time. Now, I love the bumper stickers that we have, like Easy Does It and or Let Go and Let God that you see on the interstate, and you can kind of have a meeting, you know, in your car for about 15 miles or so. I love those bumper stickers. This bumper sticker wasn't like that. It had never seen it before. It was for a dog obedience school. And in little tiny letters, it said, like, Jones Dog Obedience School. And in large letters, it said, Sit Happens. Okay? <laughs> okay? That's how I found the God of my understanding, by following that bumper sticker. I just sat. I sat in meetings and I listened. I sat in my backyard and I looked at the sky. I sat beside the lake. And that's how I found a friendlier, kinder God. It was amazing that I could see this wonderful God that possibly had already always been there. But I hadn't seen it until I got to that wonderful moment of realizing a friendly God. You know, um, my disease is one of amnesia. I forget what I know. I forget what I believe. I forget what you taught me. So to help me do that, I go back to an old TV commercial. It was uh, black and white. I think it was uh, It's for V8 juice. I think it was black and white. If you remember it, it shows these people running around desperately in their day. They're trying to stay very busy, and they're trying to accomplish household things and work things, and all of a sudden they, they hit their forehead like this, and they go, oh, they realize they've missed lunch, and they go, oh, I could have had a V8. Well, when I'm desperately running around, I've got this energy that's really not working for me, and I can't figure out why my day isn't working, I go, oh, I could have had an HP, you know? So when I go in on Monday and this is really flat and red, <laughs> they know what's been going on in my life, you know. So that's how I remember that I have this God that cares about me and a caring God. And I, I want to tell one more story about this best friend God, what I call the best friend God. And that was a lesson that I got from my oldest daughter. This daughter teaches school. She's in her early 30s. And I want to tell you that last August, this daughter celebrated 10 years in AA. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That applause is for the people in the rooms that parented her, that loved on her. You know, she got sober when she was 21. She says, you know, Mom, when it was legal for me to drink is when I stopped drinking. <laughs> Go figure, you know. Uh, this is a, a young, gorgeous woman that I saw hit such a hard bottom. She's the same one that stood in front of me and stomped her foot and said, Mom, let me hit my own. I'd been in Al-Anon a couple of years, and I couldn't understand why she didn't stop drinking. She'd seen what it had done to our family. And that wonderful light bulb went on one day and said, oh, I get it. She can't. And I'm here to tell you that the most beautiful words that that daughter ever said to me, they weren't, I love you, Mom. The most beautiful words were, hi, Mom. My name's Jamie. And I'm an alcoholic. Because with those words, I knew that there was hope. And um, and that's the way it's been. She's she's strong, strong program. She's married to, um, about three years to a guy that's got about five years. And there is great hope 
for our family because of this wonderful generation that I'm seeing with her. But it wasn't always this mother-daughter, lovey, touchy, cuddly stuff. I don't know if you know, but sometimes those teenagers, whoa, I felt like there were times that I was held hostage in my own home. I felt like there were times that I'm walking on eggshells. I just didn't want to set her off. Frightening, frightening things going on around her life. Things that were just so desperate and so sad for me to watch. Um, but after she'd been sober a couple of years and I'd been in Al-Anon, we started healing. You know, the, the recovery started happening and we started bonding again, I guess. And she was over to, at my house one night and, uh, and she's getting ready to leave and we'd been laughing a lot and we'd been sharing. And when we get together, what do we talk about but program? You know, isn't it wonderful though? And so she was ready to leave and she says, well, she says, hey mom, would, would you like to pray with me? Well, my heart stopped. I started hearing the music from all the Hallmark card commercials, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, this is such a reverent, precious, precious time. And I started doing the pre-prayer prayer, God, please don't let me mess this up. <laughs> and um, I said, well, well, yes, Jamie, I, I, I would. I would like to pray with you. She kind of shrugged her shoulders and said, well, great. And she got down on her knees and I got down on my knees. And in the way she addressed her God of her understanding, it changed the God of my understanding. She just said, hi, God, it's me and my mom, and we'd like to talk to you for a little while. But because she addressed, hi, God, that way, I knew that I could have a more loving, more gentle, more friendly God. And I needed that kind of God to go with me. I never could have looked at myself and gone into that dark cave of that fourth and fifth step if I hadn't had a friendly God to hold hands, no way could I have done that. And what I found out in that next part of that step work was exactly who I am. That's all it was about. It was finding out that um, I had had an experience of a lot of losses in my lifetime. And I had a lot of grieving to do. I didn't know that. I had grieving to do about... Um, the loss of the of my girls growing up because I was so preoccupied with him or my work or outside stuff trying to make me happy um, that I'd missed a lot of their growing up. I was so um, uh, desperately grieving mainly the loss of the dreams. That's what I had a lot of grieving to do, and that's what the fourth and fifth step taught me, that it was okay for me to grieve the loss of those dreams. And... Um, and healing started happening. When I started doing those weeping, sobbing from way, way down, gut level, then that allowed room for that healing to start happening. So here I am beginning my journey toward the positive direction of change in my life. It was just incredible. And um, it was almost like before that time I had had one job in life before I got into Al-Anon, and that was to try to please the disease. That's all my job was on a daily basis. And now I had a chance to a real life reality. That's how my sponsor helped me out. I'd call her and she'd tell me the truth. I hadn't heard the truth in a long time. When I was going through that second divorce, I, I came home from a business trip one time and the house was dark. The dog was at the kennel and I went in and I called my sponsor. I was desperate and I called her and I said, I just feel like I've been so rejected. And she said, you have been. <laughs> I looked at that phone and I thought, I'm going through a divorce. I really didn't need to hear that. And uh, But that was the truth. And that's what I know about these steps, that if you tell me the truth, I can learn my truth and I can speak it back to you. And when we're both speaking our truths, then we have a chance of cleaning up everything else, everything else. What I know about these wonderful character defects when I got into that part of my steps, I said my head was like a Snow White and the Seven Dwarves lived up there. You know, the envy, the greed, the jealousy, the procrastination, the ambition, the all of that going on, the ego, the anger, all of that going on and on and on and talking to me. And I can remember one day stomping my foot and I said, I hear you all, but you're going to have to line up and talk to me one at a time. It's just the best I can do, you know. And the uh, Our Courage to Change book in the Al-Anon literature helped me most of all with these character defects in one sentence. It says, being human is not a character defect. Wow. I needed to hear that because I didn't know that it was okay just to be me. The last page on that Courage to Change of the last day of the year, it says, I'm not perfect, but I am excellent. I needed to hear that 
I needed to hear that desperately because I thought all I was was the mess of my character defects. That was wonderful healing that happened for me. Um, the last part of the steps helped me so much on living on a daily basis with you. And when I got into making my formal amends, my sponsor knew me so well. She said, you have a tendency to pick at scabs. She said, you are not going to have to make amends on the way you make amends. She knew if I could get in front of those former husbands one more time and tell it one more way, I was going to be in big trouble. <laughs> so she gave me a little note card with about 12 words on it. And all I could say, no matter what their reaction was, no matter what they said, I could only say those 12 words. When I got down to the bottom, I just had to stop back up at the top. And when I made my formal amends, they were good and they were clean. And uh, and thanks to a strong sponsor that kept me focused that way. And I had done these formal amends, and uh, there was one woman on my list. Uh, I'd made all of them to family members, to, to uh, everybody at work, to uh, close family members and distant family members, um, made a lot of amends. And there was one woman still on my list, and this was a woman that I'd met in early Al-Anon. And it was a time that she was telling the truth, and I wasn't ready to hear the truth. And she was talking in a meeting about infidelity. And I wasn't ready to hear about that part of our disease. And I got angry at this woman, and I started gossiping about her, and I started avoiding her at meetings. And if she went into one room to discuss something, I would always go into the other room. And I knew that I had done some damage to myself by my activity around this woman. And I didn't know her last name, and she stopped coming to meetings. And um, and I thought, how am I going to make this amends? I, I just, you know, I had been praying about it. I felt really good about this whole process, and I knew the miracles that happened from it. And I thought, what's going to happen about this woman, this mystery woman? What am I going to do? Now, I have a wonderful deck on the back of my house that I like to go out and have my coffee in the mornings. But for some reason, this particular morning, I took my coffee out on my front step, which faces the street. And I'm there literally talking and praying to God, like, God, I don't know how I'm going to make this this last amends, but I feel like I need to get on with my step work. And I'm thinking about that, and I'm drinking my coffee, and I look up, and this woman is walking down my street. And I think I have conjured her up. I don't think she's real. <laughs> I rub my eyes, and she's still there, you know. And I put my coffee cup down, and I go running out to her. Well, you can imagine this woman on her daily walk sees this other woman come running to her. She kind of backs up, and I said, I don't know if you remember me or not, but we used to go to such and such meeting, and one time you said this, and I need to make amends to you. And we had a wonderful exchange. She said, you know, I live about two blocks over. I walk every single morning. I have never walked down this street before. You can't tell me that God doesn't want us to do this step work when those kind of things happen in our lives. I was going through the steps again about two years ago, and I came to this ninth step, and I knew that I'd done a really thorough job on making amends, but some uneasiness happened around this step, and I couldn't figure it out. And I and I did what you've taught me to do. I went to God in prayer, and I said, I don't know what's going on, but, but I feel uneasy around this step. And I was given the idea of making some positive amends, what I call good amends. I realized that there would be people in my life that had been important to me that I'd kind of like ignored or glossed over or minimized. I'm talking about that woman in Florida that gave me those socks that night without knowing my name or where my destination was. I'm talking about a high school teacher in Odessa, Texas that got me off the back row and got me interested in high school events. I'm talking about the women that loved me when I first got into Al-Anon. And I sat down and I made a list of those people and I went to them and I said, I need to make good amends to you. I need to say thank you for being who you are and what you did in my life. And immensely good healing happened for me when I went and made those good amends for what it's worth. Um, I believe the tenth step is probably the biggest Al-Anon step ever. If we continue to take personal inventory and when we make, uh, when we're wrong, promptly admit it, I sometimes feel like that in Al-Anon we promptly admit it too quickly. We really have to look at the situation it is, and it says if we if we need to make amends. And so I think that we don't look at the first part of that step enough, continue to take personal inventory. At least for me, I realized that. I thought, how can I continue to take personal inventory 
so I'm not having to make these amends all the time. It's like I work with a lot of retailers, and the and the guy that sells shoes doesn't order shoes after he's all out of shoes. The grocery store doesn't order bread after they're all out of bread. How can I take an inventory before I have to make amends? And it was given to us. It, uh, it came out of my home group at first, and then later I saw it in the wonderful Paths of Recovery, our book. And when you're getting ready to take an inventory to find out if you're getting ready to do something that you might have to make amends for, you ask yourself three questions. They're called the was it's. Was it requested? Wow, what a great question. If you're getting ready to do an action with somebody else, did they ask for your help? Was it requested? Was it necessary? And was it appreciated? If a person says thank you after you've had an exchange with them, chances are both sides of the street are clean. I absolutely love those questions to do that inventory around step 10. I told this story one time, and after I talked, this wonderful, crusty AA guy came up to me, and he says, Hon, I've got two more questions for you. And I said, great, what are they? He says, when I'm getting ready to do an inventory on some of my actions, I ask myself, will it harm anyone, and can I afford it? And he says, I don't mean physically as far as money goes. I mean, can I afford to do this physically, spiritually, and emotionally? So those are two good questions to ask yourself before you're getting ready to do something. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about prayer and meditation. I absolutely love this step. In, in our ODAP book, it says this is one step we can kind of do before we've done some of the other steps because we do pray. We do the serenity prayer. In my home group, we close with the, with the Lord's Prayer. With the women I work with, um, I find out right away what their God is like because I do a lot of prayer and I can't be sending them to this scary, mean, unfriendly God because I believe in prayer work and all of our steps. But um, I want to tell you about three quick prayers. And one of them is one that I heard in a meeting about six months ago. It's absolutely one of the best Al-Anon prayers I've ever heard. And it goes like this. God, please keep your arm around my shoulders and your hand over my mouth. That is a good Al-Anon prayer. The other one is a prayer that came out in a wonderful spiritual book that was released at Salt Lake City at the Al-Anon International about two years ago. It's a very nice book, very gentle readings in it, and lovely, lovely pictures. And But this prayer is, is kind of a chuckle of a prayer. I liked it so very much. It says, God... Please let me be today the kind of person my dog thinks I am. You know, that, that's a good, a good little prayer. The third prayer I want to tell you about is a little more difficult for me to share uh, because it's my personal prayer. Uh, I hope that y'all were got to uh, hear Scott earlier today, my wonderful now and forever husband, Scott. And um, I have to say, be careful what you pray for because this wonderful man came into my life. I, I thought the rest of my life was going to be... Um, without marriage. That's all I could tell you, that marriage had not been very happy for me, my past two experiences, and I thought, I'm just going to, to not be married. And um, Scott and I started dating. Uh, we met through his open AA group. I was encouraged to go to some open meetings early, in early recovery, to find out just what was going on in the AA life. I go to the open meetings, and I don't talk. I just listen. And that's where Scott and I met, and um, and we, we dated, we courted, we got in a committed relationship, and then we got into a marriage. We've been married uh, five years, and this past December it was five years. I love this man. Um, what I know about our household is that with each of us, God is always going to be first in our lives. Our program is always going to be second. And each other, we're always going to be third. I'm never going to be higher than third place in that man's life, and that's the way that it should be for us. We don't work each other's programs. We do have a couple of uh, questions that we can ask each other. This helps a whole lot. We can ask each other, how long has it been since you've been to a meeting? That's a safe question. We can also ask each other, would you be willing to talk to your sponsor about that? That's a safe question. And that is as far as we come. And neither one of us will be offended if we ask each other that question. But here I am in this wonderful marriage. I'm telling you, I've had to fasten my seatbelt these past five years just to hang on to this wonderful, blessed life that we're living. There's a lot of laughter in our home. There's a lot of um, gathering of friends and family in our home. We have eye contact, and we're noisy, and we're fun, and I like it that way. But when it came time, as an adult woman of my species, 
When it came time to go into the bedroom, fear set in. Remember, I'm the one that slept in the bathtub. I'm the one that's used the bedroom to reward, control, manipulate, make it a big deal. I'm the one that acted out when I was single. I'm the one that thought that the infidelities had caused all the problems in my former marriages. So I, all of the work that I'd done around the steps, I still had a great deal of anxiety when we would go into the bedroom. Those ghosts would still show up. So I went to God in prayer and I said, I really need some help here. And I was given just this simple, simple little prayer. And it's just this. When Scott and I are getting ready to have a physical exchange, I just say, God, please help me stay in the moment. That's all. God, please help me stay in the moment. And that eliminates all of that history, all of those other other times, good, bad, or indifferent, those other times are gone. And it also eliminates all of the fear of tomorrow as far as performance or attitudes or feelings. And I just say, God, help me stay in the moment. And I can say that my God takes over, or maybe Mother Nature takes over. <laughs> and um, I never know how to stop talking about that, other than I say, I get so hot. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I absolutely, I just absolutely get so... Uh, Let's talk about meditation. <laughs> okay. I believe that you can have a meditation of your understanding. Now, I used to do meditation this way. I would get up in the morning, and I would make sure the lights were just right, and I would find the right music, and I would make sure I had uncomfortable clothes, and I got the pillows just right. Whoa, I'm late for work. I don't have time to do this meditation. I spent so much time getting ready for meditation that I didn't have time to do it. What I know about meditation is that, man, you can take it with you wherever you are. I believe that um, the days that I think that I don't have time to do meditation, that's when God puts me in the road work that my car's completely stopped for a few minutes. It's the time that I'm standing at the grocery store and the 15 or under line and the lady in front of you has 22 items because you've counted them, you know? <laughs> Those are the times when I think I don't have time for meditation that God gives me all of these wonderful chunks of time. And so I came up with this meditation for me. And it's called one it's called one with a suitcase on it. You know, you can pick it up and take it wherever you're going. And it's just this. In a quiet time, you visualize a wonderful container above your head. And um, it can be a cardboard box or a crystal bowl or a terracotta clay pot. It can be anything you want it to be. And then you just start collecting good things. You start collecting a laugh that you had with your sponsor, and you drop that in. You start collecting a fun time, a smell of a puppy, and you drop that in. You you put in the first time of you, you saw the snow this year when it just looked so beautiful on the grass. You start collecting times of, like from this conference, just whatever good happenings are in your life, you start dropping them in, and you collect them up there, and they kind of make this gooey, soupy stuff. And then when you're standing in the line at the grocery store, tapping your foot, you remember that that's up there. And you very calmly close your eyes and you just visualize all of that good dripping down on your face, on your shoulders, just like wax going down the side of a candle. And it, and it calms me down. It helps me a lot. That's one of my favorite meditations to do. The other one is uh, when I have my car and the car wash. You know, all the suds is going on around. I absolutely love that time. Nothing can get to me. It's just my own special time with God. Scott and I do uh, meditations in the morning together a lot. And that people say, well, wh well, how do you do that? Well, he sits on his side of the bed, and I sit on my side of the bed. Or he sits on his side of the couch, I sit on my side of the couch. We just sit quietly together. And it's wonderful what happens just in the quiet time. Sometimes we take a topping into meditation. If something's really bothering us as far as our household is concerned, family member is concerned, we sit very quietly with that and say, God, this is what we're concentrating on today. So I believe that there's no way to do meditation wrong, that it's a gift. It's a gift that you give your loving God back. You know, we say what we want for my kids is just to have time with, with them. Well, that's what God wants, just for us to have time with him, just hang out with him for what it's worth. Um, I absolutely love these steps. I absolutely love program. I've got such a passion for Al-Anon in my life. Because it saved my life, literally. Um, literally saved my life. It changed my life. And now it's a way of life. And the gift that I got 
the spiritual awakening that I got from working these steps. One of them is that there's no limit to how happy God wants me to be. You know, I thought there, even when I'd been in program about six years, I got this fear that this happiness was like a spigot that God was going to turn off one day. I don't believe that any longer. I believe there's absolutely not too much joy out there. There's not too much happiness that God is saying, go for it. Have a good and wonderful life. And the other spiritual awakening I got from these steps is that I have choices. Before I got into Al-Anon, I didn't know I had a choice. I thought I just had to do what you said do. I thought I just had to go and be. I thought I just had to be on that run, on that journey. That's all I thought that my way of life was. Now I know that I can choose what I wear. I can choose where I eat. I can choose who I hang out with. I guess the biggest choices of all I have is how I spend my time and who I spend it with. And that's the gift of this program that I choose to spend it with recovering people and hanging out at conferences and going and being here with you guys. That's a conscious choice that I make. But because I forget what I believe, because I forget what I know, I have a story about choices. And it has to do with the village long, long ago when there was this wise old man there and everybody loved him and they thought he was a one to be honored and they thought he was just great. And there was a young boy in this village that had an attitude and um, he wanted to trip the old man up. And so he um, he came up with a plan and the plan was this. The little boy caught a baby bird and he was going to go to the old man and he was going to ask the old man if the bird was dead or alive. And he was going to put the baby bird behind his back and ask the old man that. And if the wise old man said, well, son, that bird is alive. Well, the boy was going to crush the bird and show him the dead bird. But if the wise old man said, well, that bird is dead. Well, then the young boy was just going to show him the live bird. It was a great plan. They called everybody around to witness this. The young boy caught the bird. He put it behind his back. He went up to the wise old man and he looked him right in the eye and he said, you are so wise and you are so all-knowing. You tell me whether or not this bird is dead or alive. And without hesitation, the wise old man said, the choice is yours. I need to remember that story, that I've got choice as to whether or not I pull the covers over my head or I get up and I brush my teeth and I go to a meeting. I've got choices on whether or not I pick up that telephone and I call my sponsor because I think at first I'm not worthy of her time and now I know that I am worthy of recovery. Those are the choices that I know I can make in my life today. I try not to worry so much anymore. I used to worry. I think it's Al-Anon's favorite sport, worry, worry, worry. What I have to do now is find things that are more suitable for me to worry about and I want to share one with you. We're going to play just a little bit here. I want to say that maybe next Thursday at 2 o'clock, we all worry about this at the same time. And it's this scientific dilemma as to what would happen if everyone in the world sneezed at the same time. This is very scientific. As we gasp in, we would probably swallow the ozone layer, right? And we know how important that is, right? And when we went achoo, we'd probably just move the whole earth off its axle and we'd go spinning off into one of those movie places where they bad things happen or whatever. I mean, this is a very scientific thing. So next Thursday at 2 o'clock, we're going to worry about what would happen if everyone sneezed at the same time. I don't know what would happen, but I believe we would hear this wonderful loving voice say, God bless you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>